Lucy Jones and this week I hope you're not hungry because we're going to be talking about food. Specifically really easy food because we're talking about meal boxes, meal delivery boxes and this is something that I've had experience of but recently we've noticed that there's been a, a sort of a, a real uptake of meal delivery services um, over the pandemic but also the number of um, companies that um, would normally be um, doing sit-in meals are actually delivering as well whether that's um, they're delivering pre-prepared food or whether they're delivering the bits of the food that you can make the meal yourself so essentially um, along the lines of the meal delivery box. Um, I was looking at some stats before and these ones are from last summer but basically said that um, delivery services light takeaways, meal kits and grocery boxes have seen a huge growth in sales as a result of the pandemic. And this is based on the purchasing habits of 22 million UK bank accounts. It's interesting that they got oh the information from bank accounts. 11 million of which use delivery services. 11 million out of 22 million. Wow, okay. Okay. All right, that, yeah, that is interesting. I... Because I've, I don't know about you, but I've done, I've had um, prepared meals delivered that you just heat up from certain restaurants. I've not had that actually. No, I've okay. I've had warm meals that have uh, that I've collected. Right, from so I've never done that okay. apart from a d- pizza delivery. So who did you have the we um, had, heat it yourself? Uh, that was coat. Coat Brasserie. Okay. Um, and that, that was lovely. It was all done beautifully. Um, and then we've had a couple of... Um, they send you the ingredients and you cook. So yeah. we had a, a tapas one. Uh, my brother sent to us um, as a present. Um, and so we were cooking. We were making a cheese uh, a cheesecake uh, or like a creme brulee. Um, and this one, you had videos that you went and watched and oh. it told you how to do it. So, you know, here's the ingredients for, I don't know, whatever it was, some prawns, for example. Here's the link to the video. The video tells you how to make it. Then you make it. And did it work? Yeah, it was really good. Oh, Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Um, And then the other one we had was, um, again, was a gift. But it was some some amazing steak that was delivered. with various things like creamed spinach or whatever. So it was sort of a hybrid of you're cooking something from scratch, but then there's also things that you're warming up. All right, so you cook the steak fresh, but yes. you warmed up the sides. Yes, exactly. That sounds yeah. good, yeah. yeah. That sounds good as well. But you've done the more... Yeah, I haven't done any over the pandemic, actually. Um, so my need for meal delivery boxes sort of coincided with uh, going back to employment from self-employment and he- hence been less inclined to want to go food shopping yeah. after I've finished work. And so I had a few months um, using Abel and Cole. Okay. Are they organic? Or uh, are they... Yeah, organic, yeah. yeah. And um, interestingly enough, over, pand- over the pandemic, I think they stopped doing their meal delivery boxes, whereas lots of other companies have increased their meal mm. delivery boxes. So it's an interesting choice from Abel and Cole. I would have highly recommended it. I loved it. I'd probably still be doing it now, um, apart from my other half um, wasn't as keen on it. Right. But I, I just love the whole... Um, I don't have to decide what to eat every night 
or I don't have to do a massive menu plan and then a shopping list. And what I really hate, the shopping. Mm. And then once you've done the shopping, you've got to put it in the cupboards as well. Oh, that's the oh. bit I really hate. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I like the sitting down once a week, having a look to see what was available from the list of meals. There's photographs, there's ingredients, there's um, nutrition information. And you just pick from the list and then... Uh, on the appointed day, a box would arrive with all the ingredients in. Admittedly, with Abel and Cole, there was a little bit too much packaging at the time I was doing it, but they took all the packaging back and said they recycled it, so that really wasn't a problem. Right. And there was no waste. That's amazing. So I didn't have to sh- really think. I, I, did, I don't mind cooking. I actually quite like cooking, but I don't like having to think about what to cook, mm. shopping and, and all of that malarkey. So if I just got in from work and tonight it's whatever it was, Cajun beans or something, I'd quite happily cook it because that's quite relaxing. Yes, yeah, so I you loved get, it. You get the good bits without the um, all the fat. Without yeah. the, all the fat. I think the big thing, and and as, as as a business, you know, to be running this as a business, it it, it yes, it kicks into convenience, um, but it's also we're much more. I think we're becoming much more aware of food wastage. Yeah. And it is that that you get four portions of this, you know, and enough for four of that or whatever it might be or whatever you order. Um, so you get a, a cheaper per head price because you haven't got to buy a whole bag of potatoes when you actually only need half a bag of potatoes yeah. for argument's sake. Or even with spices, you know, how many people mm. have got old spices in the back of their cupboard? And, you know, you've bought a huge jar or a huge bag a little while ago because you were going to make this special thing and then you've never touched it since. Uh, I suppose the converse works. I do tend to get through a lot of spices. I like to cook curries and things like that. And so when when Abel and Cole sent me a little pot of turmeric or something, that seemed like a waste because I'd already got turmeric. But... But I, yes, I but if it really was see. yeah, if it was fenugreek or something, I don't know, something <laughs> that you, you don't generally use. Or Interestingly whatever. enough, uh, just this weekend, I was googling what else can I use instead of fenugreek. Oh well, there we go. <laughs> and what was the Doesn't answer? Doesn't have any. Uh, nothing that I had no. in anyway, so I, I just did without fenugreek. <laughs> but uh, but again, going back to the the business idea, but the profitability there. Because um, I can't remember. So with Abel and Cole, was the price all in, or was it the price of the box and then a delivery charge? Do I remember? don't remember. I think it was the price all in, um, and I, it was reasonable at the time. But I've seen the prices of some of the the boxes that are really popular at the moment. Um, for, I, I was looking through um, a, a whole list of um, boxes available, and the prices seem to have come down an awful lot. Or maybe it's because Abel and Cole is exclusively organic. I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's a but it, it was still acceptable price point for me. But actually, now the, there's a, a couple of the boxes there. Where you go, do you know what? I couldn't go shopping for that. I, yeah. you know, I, it's not even worth me getting in the car for the price of those meal boxes. Well, um, looking at an article that you you signposted me to on BBC Good Food, even Morrison's supermarket do a recipe box. Yeah, I had Uh, a look. It looks really good, actually. You tend to... Well, I certainly tended to think about it being organisations that only did this. Yeah. But the idea that Morrison's are doing it... um, And I I, I guess they're going to be fairly... um, 
economical. Yeah, so what what they're um, claiming, Morrison's, is that it's practical, affordable and family-friendly. So it's looking at basic items, but using you know, Morrison's products and that all the reviews I've read say that it's fresh and feels wholesome and that, you know, they're providing with balanced meal choices. So I, th- I think it's great given a certain budget and um, a certain expectations, Morrison's would suit a lot of people. So do you think one thing that, you know, we have seen through through lockdown is that restaurants and pubs, you know, they've been doing home delivery haven't they but it's like cooked food so where do you think the difference is between the one the box where you get the stuff and you cook it yourself and the one where you get your local pub to deliver you it's value adding isn't it so if if they're just delivering the ingredients that's one um profit margin but if then they've then got to prepare it they're adding another layer of cost themselves, aren't they? So um, that value-added product is just going to be more expensive to the consumer. So I imagine it would take quite a budget for you to have pre-prepared meals every night. Yes. Yes, <laughs> it probably would. Although I have to say, although it's slightly different, that um, in Oswestry, uh, we've got something called Osnosh. And, <laughs> Sounds good. I know. And they get food, so they're... Um, a charitable organisation, they get food given to, donated to them by supermarkets and then they cook them into meals and those are then delivered, a bit like Meals on Wheels, as affordable meals for people who, you know, are on low budgets, etc. You know, we've talked about um, products and brand names that aren't transferable into different regions. Yes. You do know there's an, um, a region in the UK that the word nosh has a very, very different meaning. No? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, So okay, if you're advertising no, Osnosh, no. <laughs> you might be getting a very different client. <laughs> anyway, moving well, every on. Every day's a school day. <laughs> so I was having a look, and one of the best-reviewed um, meal delivery services was Gusto. But let's get whiz through a few. If you do a Google search for meal delivery boxes, you've got Mindful Chef, All Plants, Gusto, Green Chef, Square Meal, HelloFresh. Um, and, and all of these turn up. And actually, I'm, I've not read many bad reviews on any of them. So, you know, I only did a brief bit of mm-hmm. research, but they all seem to have their fans, their followers, who, um, who give them a, a, a big thumbs up. Well, and, and Gusto apparently is delivering 4 million meals to 380,000 households each month. So I'm working on the basis that those 380,000 households are having more than one day's food. If you think you know, yeah, the average yeah. household is four people, for argument's sake. Um, that's a lot of food. Yeah, do you think that's because more people are wanting the convenience of their food being delivered but not wanting processed ready meals because I suppose you could go to the supermarket and you could buy a week's worth of ready meals but actually what you get with these meal delivery boxes is the opportunity to do some home cooking with good ingredients Mm. so you tend to feel that you're eating better food. Yeah and I think we you know with the best will in the world we have to remember that there are people who are living on very very low income um, and actually, the idea of having this is is just totally out of their 
um, out of their affordability because they are basically living mm. off pasta and beans and you know yeah um so i guess it's this is it has a place in amongst the demographic uh, it's not for everybody because even even with these savings it's still expensive but i also think that um it's a discipline thing if you so say you you've ordered and you're having deliveries then um you won't go to the shop and then come home with a pizza and you know and a, a bottle of wine <laughs> and a bottle of wine yeah exactly so if you if people are thinking a bit more about what fuel they're putting into yeah. their bodies it can be helpful it's like you know don't buy biscuits don't have biscuits in the house if you don't want to eat them because if they're in the house you're going to eat them um, so maybe it's a, it's a health thing as much as it is a yeah, convenience thing. Th- there are um, some boxes, well, a few of the ones I looked at are for healthy option meals. Um, and there are some uh, delivery services that are specifically for weight loss or health. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, we've done that. Uh, my husband and I did that quite a few years ago when they literally just delivered what I call chicken ding. I mean, it would just be like a pouch of stuff. You heat it in the microwave and you add some veg to it. Oh, God. That, and that's all that you're eating. soul-destroying to me. <laughs> <It was hard. laughs> did it that work, Heather? It did work, did actually. It? We when we, we stuck to it rigidly and it, we did shift quite a lot of weight. But um, but whenever we've gone back to trying to do it again, it's just a step too far, the chicken ding and the... Um, mm. the chi- it's just like, no, I can't go back to that. No. There's only some... so much spinach you can eat. <laughs> I read something about Gusto here. Um, so on the website TechCrunch, they they mentioned about the um, growth of Gusto. They're doing really well. Um, they use artificial intelligence to craft recipes that they think people will want. How does that work, I wonder? <laughs> I haven't got a clue. I didn't dig that far into it. But apparently this is what they believe sets them apart from their competition, um, is this use of artificial intelligence to work out what recipes people want. Well, I suppose given the conversation we had about um, the great hack... Yeah, they know weeks. everything about you. They know everything about you. Yeah. Well, you get a fancy for tea next yes. week. <laughs> and, now, and now that they can look at your bank account and see whether you've checked out at Pizza Express or Coat or the Indian <laughs> takeaway, um, it's hardly surprising then that they're forming a picture. But I suppose that data is going to be quite expensive. Yes, I imagine it is. Um, I I don't know. I'd like to. Pre- now you've asked me. Now I feel like I need to dig into how they work out what <laughs> recipes, because presumably they aren't doing it on an individual basis. Because you go to their website, and I think I see the same list of recipes as everybody else. Or do I? Or do you? Yeah. You think that on Netflix, don't you? And then. Yeah, you've got a completely different menu. Yes. <laughs> Literally. Literally, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay, mm. you're, giving, you're giving me some homework. Do you know what I'm going to say now? Food for thought. <laughs> oh, God. Right then, moving on. <laughs> you've recommended a book um, called Small Giants, uh, subtitled Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. And I realised as I started doing a bit of research around this, this is something that's really important to me. Is that um, I recognised years ago that all the um, enthusiasm for supporting business was based on growth. 
funding, training, all sorts of opportunities, everything that you can possibly imagine. Job creation. Exactly. And sometimes the the business shouldn't grow. It's not in the interest of the business or for the people that it's serving, the product or whatever it is. Mm. And I think as well that there are an awful lot of small businesses doing enormously good things that actually, if they did grow, they would mutate and be something completely different. And I don't think there is a lot of support for those micro-businesses that are doing so much for um, you know, the economy, you know. So yeah. they're, they're maybe not employing hundreds of people, but they're not um, taking jobs themselves. You know, the people who are working in that small business are taking benefits, are yeah. actually yeah. earning, they're contributing, they're providing a product, a service to people who need it. So, yeah, I really, I felt really, yes. Go on then. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and I mean, I feel the same way as a sole director of a limited company. You I, got caught out with all this furlough stuff, didn't you, during the pandemic? Yeah, uh, yeah, and you, you know, there's, yeah, the support, the support is one thing, and you know, accessibility to that support. But the other thing I think is that sometimes, pe- when when you say you're a sole director, you know, people. People go, okay, well, you know, how long have you been going? Oh, you know, two years as a limited company, 12 years as a sole practitioner. Have you got, you know, you've not got any staff? As though that's a failing Lacking in some way. ambition yeah. or, or skill. Or, yeah. yeah, whereas in actual fact, and this is one of the things that gets covered in this book, I know what I offer is it's going to be me delivering it. So love me or hate me, that's what you're going to get. I have absolute control over the quality, or not, of the work that I deliver. If I mess it up, I mess it up on my own, you know, for myself. Um, And I think think that means that I can stay true to my values. I don't have to work with people that I don't like. um, And I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do. You know, I have control. uh, And... I have freedom to collaborate. I'm not making decisions for anybody other than myself. And I've worked in a lot of small businesses where I've been brought in as they've been growing. And the dynamic inevitably changes because if it's Bill and Bob who've been running a business as a partnership, for example, and now suddenly there's 12 people, Bill and Bob are hardly ever doing the stuff that they used to want to do. Yeah, They're doing all the strategic stuff. And, I and we, want to we talked that. last week, didn't we, about also those sorts of organisations going through this crisis of culture. You know, they start off small and then realise that they've got employees and that culture matters. Yeah. But it didn't when it was just one or two of them in the business. Their culture was their personality, wasn't it? Yet adding more people into the mix gives you a lot more other stuff, peripheral stuff that you have to deal with. And it's that transparency. I know at the moment, you know, a lot of people bringing people back into the uh, into the workplace, particularly, you know, we're recording this on the 17th. You know, today was the first day back at work for quite a lot of people, pubs, hotels, etc. And if there are only two of you, or if there's only me, um, it's only two of you in a business, well, it's going to be down to you or me, isn't it? it you know, if something's going wrong, it's going to be one of us. Yeah. Um, if you've got 12 people, it's always somebody else's fault. And at the moment, I'm hearing a lot of talk, you know, people are disgruntled. But it's not, well, it's not me. I'm not the problem. It's it's yeah. everybody else is the problem. And that's obviously not true. And so that can cause conflict. And, you know, 
it's not it's not good for the the intrinsic values of the business i don't think so the other thing I picked up in in the book, in the introduction particularly, as well that would made me cheerlead the book actually was that, as well as me having this own my own personal opinion about support and funding for businesses only that want to grow, it's also that a lot of the best sellers when you're reading business books are are about you know businesses that have grown from nothing to yeah to enormous billionaire. Yeah. Um, playgrounds, um, you know, and, and so what's, uh, I think in the book, the reference in search of excellence um, from good to great, but virtually any business book you're looking at, the mark of success is how they've grown. Yes, and that not feels, how they've stayed small. Yeah, and that can leave the, the person who's running the smaller business with no desire to grow a big business feeling disconnected or not even covered by that. So, well, Or not valid. I think that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, that's what they say there. That they, um, these smaller companies had not been recognised, not given a distinct category. Mm. And that's why um, the author called them small giants. Yes. Because there was no decent description for that type of business. Yeah, small implies... You know, well, weak, ineffective. You know, not 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 adding value. He 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 talks um, about it being okay to dis- to actively decide not to expand, um, and he says that he uses one example of um, a company, W L Butler Construction. Um, after its rapid expansion expansion in the seventies and eighties, owner Bill Butler wasn't happy. He wanted to know his employees personally and had too many to do that. So he cut his clients down to twenty from 25 to 10. So he, he, he hardly... He didn't just not grow, he yeah, shrunk. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he actively shrunk because he was getting more out of those interactions or his perceived value than the money that was being generated and the hassle factor and all of that. And I think as we think about work-life balance much more... You know, you can have it all. You can have it both ways. It's interesting if you do a little bit of a, a deep dive into capitalism. So I'm, I've just reading the, um, a book by Yanis Varoufakis at the oh, moment, yeah. so okay. forgive me. Um, it, it's speculative fiction, this book. Speculative fiction? Yeah. What does that What mean? if? It's fiction. What if this had happened? Oh, oh so I see. after the um, financial crash in 2008 what if this had happened oh, instead okay. it's very interesting it's making my brain hurt a little bit but one of the things it reminded me because i occasionally read a bit about economics is that society and and the economy is designed for growth yeah. so lending people lending to you is is on the assumption that you will grow from that and There's, they will grow. Yeah, and they you profit from the growth. So if you're sort of advocating an organisation that isn't growing to grow, you're not really playing the game. Not in the capitalist sense. Yeah, that's right. Mm, okay. So everything is based on growth and sort of borrowing from tomorrow. That's how he describes it in this book. I thought it's excellent. Yeah. So you're, you're being lent money on the basis that you're going to grow and they're going to use whatever you've got from the future. But if you don't grow, how, how are they going to fund today? Well, tomorrow? and I suppose then that gets into whole, the whole risk thing, doesn't it? And actuaries and, you know, are you a good risk? How likely are you to grow that investment? Yeah. Um, and but, if you don't really want to, yeah, but it's not a good starting point. Don't is it? probe me too hard, because, like I say, the book is making my head hurt. It's making me think, 
but I, I feel like uh, I need to read it about 10 times to really understand. But anyway, back to this book. Um, all of the companies that he covers in the book are American, so I didn't feel an immediate mm. um, lean towards them. However, um, I like how he described why he'd chosen the companies, yeah. and he sets out very specifically why he chose those companies. Um, so um, he restricted himself to companies where people had actually been faced with a decision whether to grow or not to grow, and they had to actually decide to make that decision so they weren't companies that just failed to grow these are companies that could have gone that way or go that way Um, and they went uh, focused on businesses that were admired and emulated in their own industries and companies that had been singled out for their extraordinary achievements by independent observers so we're not just talking any old business you know like you, you might assume that this business just didn't grow because it wasn't very good these are really good businesses that chose not to grow. Yes, yeah, yeah, because it would be easy to say, you know, if you were, if your business wasn't very successful, well, I never intended it for it to be anything yes. other than just <laughs> yes, me. Exactly. <laughs> Which isn't my case. But, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's always been from the get-go. And it's because I don't want the responsibility of anybody else's um, livelihood on, on my watch. I just, you yeah. know, I've... You know, I've worked where you've, you, you've had to make people redundant and all of those types of things. I don't want that responsibility when you have sleepless nights. It's a very different skill, isn't it, to what, you're, um, home, what you've honed and what you're selling now is a very particular training and leadership sort mm. of skill. Yeah. Whereas actually managing that business and that team of people is a very, a different, very different skill, skill isn't it? Yes. You'd, have to, you'd have to move some of your energy from what you're delivering into that part of the business as well so which I wouldn't enjoy because it's the it's the people element that I like so okay so I looked at the um four minute books um summary of this which uh is always a good go-to um and uh the, the guy at four minute books he always says who would I recommend the book to okay Uh, And so he said he would recommend it to the 45-year-old CEO who's at a crossroads between scaling and staying put. Yeah. The 21-year-old that has an interest in entrepreneurship but doesn't want to be overworked. That's that work-life balance thing. And, and this is the one that I uh, highlighted in red, and anyone who'd rather have fun in business than deal with growing too big. Because that can remove and that's a the valid enjoyment. choice, isn't it? Yeah. I think what what I like about this book is it it validates all of those choices. You've decided that you don't want to work too hard. You want work yeah. life balance, or you want to have fun. You, yeah. you just don't want to make that move into the the next league because well, it, of all it brings. It's the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? And if you don't want that, then that's that's okay. That's yeah. okay. You can just can keep it small but be a giant small giants small giants yes yes. sorry we didn't mention the author there so small giants is by Bo Burlingham what a brilliant name Bo Burlingham and Bo has also written finish big how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top street smart an all-purpose toolkit for entrepreneurs a stake in the income, building a culture of ownership for the long-term success of your business, and the great game of business, the only sensible way to run a company. I haven't read any of those, but they all sound quite intriguing. 
So we'll put a link to that on our website, which is thebusiness.community. Um, if you don't want to buy the book, then certainly check out the uh, Four Minute Books review. Yeah, one of our favourite websites. That. Thank yeah. you very much, Four Minute Books. Yes, yeah, they're, they're great. They read the books so that you don't have to. <laughs> and then we talk about <laughs> Four Minute Books so you don't have to... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's doing them down, isn't it? We, we do like to point people towards four-minute yeah, books, yeah. For sure. Okay. So our profile this week yeah. is somebody... We've actually had a change, haven't we? Because we, we were going to be profiling somebody. We're flexible. We are, we're flexing. But you sent, um, sent a link and said, hey, what about this? And it's very topical. So where did you... Sp- where did you spot this story and why are we profiling this individual? I saw um, a little video on uh, Twitter and um, the, this um, guy, I didn't know who he was, um, he turned into a dragon on a video on Twitter and um, announcement, a new fire, a new dragon, series 19, BBC One. And in this little video, which has had, by the time I looked at it again yesterday, 121,000 views. Um, And this was announcing that Stephen Bartlett um, was going to be a new dragon on Dragon's Den. But the way he announced it was flipping brilliant. He just did this. Have you seen the video? No, I haven't. This little video where he just initially snorted a bit of... Um, smoke out of his nose or something then he blew some fire and then he, he full on like changed. turned into a dragon well he didn't quite see that transformation but he blew a load of flames at the screen that was very dramatic and a brilliant way to announce it so Stephen Bartley yeah I never heard of him and um, then obviously it's all over all of the media this week so uh, I think it, it's only right that we started to talk about mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on Twitter. He's got 1.2 million followers Followers on... Uh, no, I think that's Instagram, actually. 1.2 million followers on Instagram. But he's on Twitter and everything else as well. Because he's he is Mr. Social Media. <laughs> um, he runs a, a company called Social Chain, which is described as a leading global team with a track record for leveraging owned media, technology and insight to build brands. Now, do you know what? I have to say, so I was looking, uh, you know, starting to look at this guy and he's the youngest dragon ever that, you know, all of that fantastic. He's 28, yeah. He's 28. Uh, he set up his business in his, he dropped out of university, set up the social chain in his bedroom in Manchester um, when he was 22. It's like, right, okay, the social chain, fantastic. And, but I had to, I had to Google, but what do they do? <laughs> That's what, that was why my big sign yeah. was at the end of that sentence. It's like, it's like I don't words, words, what that is. words, 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 words. Okay, Heather, tell me what social chain do then? <laughs> well, it seems from the research that I've done <laughs> that they keep companies in the forefront of the media using social platforms. So his video announcing himself as um, a new dragon was just bread and butter to him. That's what he does. And I think that was a really good illustration of what his... I think it says on his website he leads a global team of 700-plus innovators. Uh, I got 250, I don't know, but it may be a different article, but seven offices over the world. But uh, Manchester, New York, Berlin. I read his own website. Oh, so so then that's going to be correct. No, no, I would think that's correct then. I would think that's correct. 
But um, but so the one thing I did do then, because I wanted to try and understand a bit more about what they did, um, I went to their website and I looked at their job opportunities. Well, I didn't look at their website. I looked at his own his website. So tell right. us what jobs and can I apply? As I well, it. <laughs> yeah, um, two. There were two job types. There's lots of jobs in 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 uh, in New York, in Berlin, and uh, in Manchester. So if you are a midweight designer. Oh, I'm heavyweight. Literally heavy. Well, or if you're an associate director of paid social and influencer, then there's jobs to be had. I don't know what they are. (laughs) And this is why, in my humble opinion, this guy is going to be brilliant as a dragon. Well, he might be rubbish as a dragon, I don't know. But... Placing him in the dragon's den is a brilliant move because he's appealing to people who understand what those job titles are. Yes. You know, not to us 50-somethings no. who, you know, to be honest, if we if we applied for that job, yeah, not a cat in the hell's chance, have we? No. But he, he's appealing to people that are going to come from that way of thinking yeah. and that is just what they do. They understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think it, it would be brilliant because also he sets himself out for um, inspiring um, a generation in business and entrepreneurship. Um, it's going to take somebody like him, not the suited and booted white middle class males that typically yeah. are seen as funding business. Somebody like him is so inspiring. He's inspiring to me and he's he's really not appealing to me, is he, at all? At we're, all. we're not his audience. No. But what we have to say is that they... I mean, he's made a, a, a lot of money, um, hence him being on Dragon's Den. But his client list includes Coca-Cola, GlaxoSmithKline, William Hill Bookmakers, Britta Filters, Logitech. You know, these aren't... It's not, you know, Joe Soap's Garages or, yeah. you know, these are big it's not, global it's not a brands. Tim Pot organisation. No, not it? at all. Not at all. I looked into his book as well. So as well as going being on Dragon's Den, he's got a podcast, which we'll talk about in a bit. And he's also written a book which came out this March called Happy Sexy Millionaire, Unexpected Truths About Fulfillment, Love and Success. And um, he says that age 18, black, broke, lonely, insecure, university drop up from a ba- dropout from a bankrupt family. And he wrote in his diary, I want to be a happy, sexy millionaire by the age of 25. And um, by 25, I was a multimillionaire, he says, having created a business worth over $300 million. Um, but he says, ironically, in achieving everything I set out to do, I learned that I was wrong about almost everything. The world had lied to me. It had lied to me about how you attain fulfillment, love and success. And um, it's basically um, the premise of the book is that we're losing ourselves and chasing the wrong things, asking the wrong questions. And so he, he wants to rethink um, and rethink the fundamental social blueprint that our lives are built on. So it's he's, he's not just about creating the same old, same old. No, no, no not at all. And um, you you mentioned that because he, he also um, has a podcast, The Diary of a CEO podcast. Um, and that's you've listened to some of those, haven't you? Yeah, well, 
he also is not only is he doing a podcast he's doing a live version of it as well but the tickets have already sold out for this so this is on the 28th of july in the albert hall in manchester you'll have sat underneath that oh yeah yeah albert hall isn't that is that above um albert schloss is that right Oh, it might be. Oh, it's in that oh, region, okay. around there. Oh, gosh, I might be wrong now. Albert Hall in Manchester. Okay. Um, the Diary of a CEO Live sold out. Brilliant. And they're looking to do additional dates to support that. But, yeah, I listened to um, a few fragments of his podcast. So a lot of the podcast um, episodes in full are about an hour to an hour and a half long. That's quite an investment of time, isn't it? But I, I am tempted to go back. I've subscribed to it because he's got some really interesting names on there with good subjects. You know, Professor Green and Russell Kane. And they're talking about mental health and, and challenges they've faced. But two that I listened to, which were from the Moments series. And this is where he picks out about nine minutes or so of a previous podcast that he wants to share. Um, so I listened to Moment 5. Ben Francis on how to respond when things go wrong. I really enjoyed that one. And it's looking about resilience and composure under pressure. Um, and Ben Francis, um, I think he was, a, was he CEO, founder of Gymshark? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was talking about how they... Um, how they sort of maintain that brand. It told an amazing story about how he um, he hand wrote thousands of letters to customers just to um, uphold the customer satisfaction ratings. Crikey! He literally hand wrote these letters, and then the other one um, where I really got an insight into the guy, and he wasn't at all how I expected. His voice was different to what I expected but his his whole personality I really really warmed to in this in is Stephen yeah. Stephen yeah. yeah um so in moment four he talks about how I discovered a more grateful perspective um and he's uh, in this um short podcast he talks about a trip he took to India and he really reflected on how privileged his life was when he compared it to um what people in Mumbai were experiencing um I, he, he just said that um, this is how he discovered he needs a more grateful perspective on life. And it really got an insight into the person. It, and, and we've talked about this so many times, haven't we? This insight into the person. It's not necessarily about knowing who they're married to or you know what sort of car they've got, where they live or what they eat for dinner. It's actually what makes that person tick, yeah. what their values are. I really got an insight into that with him. So I would highly recommend having a listen to that. I really, really enjoyed it. If you want to have um, some of Stephen Bartlett's thoughts drop into your inbox, um, then he's going to start um, five thoughts, five most important sentences I've read in the previous week. And you can sign up for that on his website. Oh, that does sound interesting. Yes, I'm intrigued to know the five most important sentences you, you've you heard in a week. I think I'd have to think really hard for yeah, to well, do that myself. I think you'd have to write them down as they were said. I'm imagining that if Stephen's put it out there that he's going to be sending these out to people, he's going to be thinking really hard and keeping notes mm, as he goes mm, along. Mm, yeah. Mm. That's not a bad thing for any of us to do, though, is it? No. Just for our own benefit. When yeah. somebody says something that resonates for whatever reason, I think 
yeah. just to take time and reflect on that. Yes, I've never seen a reflective topic as that, five important mm. sentences, mm. or even one important mm. sentence. Because mm. because very often the ones that we remember aren't actually that helpful, like, you know, you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> or <Yeah. laughs> or yeah. no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, important. It's, uh, yeah, what, what, how do you define important then, I guess, is mm. it'll be interesting to explore that with him. So I've signed up for that as well. Yeah, good on you. That's all we've got time for this week on The Business Community. If you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast, you can find out about all the things that we've talked about over the years at our website, which is thebusiness.community. We do hope you'll join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Mm -hmm.